Someone asked me if I'd ever stop playing Wonderwall on guitar. I said, maybe. Oh, my God. <laughs> That's stupid. Right? Pretty great. Oh, man. Well, this is Luke. And that's Molly. And we're L&M. So we have been married for 15 years, and I feel like we are just starting to get to know each other. Would you agree? I totally agree. Because even still, to this day, we will find something out about each other and be like, how did we never know this? And it's not always anything like super profound. What is your favorite thing that you've learned about me in the past year? Well, I would say the deep thing would be your resilience. Hmm. Like just watching you grow in in that. As far as how you deal with the heavy things that come your way, um, you're very resilient in that. Like you don't, you're learning how to not let those things affect you as much anymore. And I think that's really admirable. Damn, babe. Thanks. Feel all seen. Whoop whoop. You gotta make your wife feel seen, people. <laughs> or your significant other. <laughs> I think my favorite thing that I've seen about you that's really starting to like show its face in the past year is facing your fear head on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely something that I've um shied away from in the past. I feel like you're less about hiding the fear. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you feel like that's true? Yes, I do. Mm. I would like sometimes it's hard to see that in yourself, but then like when you when you take a look back, you're like, oh yeah, I've I've grown here. <laughs> so it's it's pretty nice to uh, have someone else acknowledge that and feel seen in that regard romance romance so we met in january of 2002 is that what it was 2002 oh yeah the senior in high school i was a junior i had a boyfriend i probably had a girlfriend I don't remember. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Details. And I feel like everyone just kind of knew. Everyone well, kind would, of knew that we were going to end up together. I don't know about at that point in time because our first meeting was very, very short. I kind of have a feeling, though. Because I remember people would be talking about you and I'm like, who the heck is this Luke guy? Everyone talks about Luke. <laughs> Everyone did talk about You me. know, and I feel like, too, that people were just like, ooh, Luke and Molly need to meet. Because I feel like they would be, like, the perfect match. And so I I met you. I remember walking into this gym and saw this, like, scrappy, red-haired 
boy climb the side of the wall, shimmy his way to the middle of the ceiling and drop. And you landed on your feet. For some reason, I always wore tube socks. And whenever I would do that, they would unroll themselves down to my ankles. Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) And so do you remember what I had asked you? I don't recall the moments after landing, but you asked what my favorite band is. And I said, skillet. And then I threw up in my mouth. Yeah. And walked away. For an entire year. (laughs) (laughs) I moved away and then moved back. And then you walked into the church again. You walked up to me and asked what my favorite band is. And I said, blindside. And you said, that's better. You want to hang out? (laughs) Which is funny because... I acted all badass about music, and I really had no idea. Because we were, we were good Christian kids, and we thought, we thought Blindside was badass because it was 90s screamo music. Was it really technically screamo? Well, yeah, I mean, it was like, I, I, don't, I don't know that I know the real genre, but it'd be like hard rock, you know, he screamed a lot. Yeah. But yeah, it was like Christian hard rock. Not not like heavy metal, but it was like, I don't know. I think they're sort of unclassifiable. I remember I remember a friend of mine, we would harmonize with it. And one of our mutual friends would get so mad and say, you can't harmonize to metal. <laughs> Except they do in metal all the time. Right, but we didn't even put that together until years later. We were getting like offended that they wouldn't want us to harmonize with it. And Blindside harmonized with themselves. Right, exactly. <laughs> I think it's because we had such pretty voices. He was jealous? No, I think we were just too pretty. Oh, I got you. It wasn't, yeah. It was, they harmonized with their manly voices. Well, not even manly. He he could sing pretty dang high. Yeah, I don't know. And dead poetic. He had a high voice. But yeah, so our our meeting sparked a friendship. But wait, did you even notice that I was gone for a year? Yeah, of course I did. I did have... I know for sure I had a girlfriend while you were gone that lasted basically that whole time. But yeah, I think... I'm pretty sure I would think about you from time to time. Like, where'd that Molly chick go? Really? Yeah. Did you like me? I liked your boobs. Oh my god. See, now the last time we recorded this, you were all sweet and romantic, and you're just like, man, I miss that Molly girl. I kind of liked her. I knew right from the start I liked her. And now you're talking about my tatas. (laughs) Yeah. No, okay. So the real... The real thing is you had a confidence about you that I enjoyed that I hadn't really like seen in a person before, like, you know, around my age, you know, because when you're like 17, 18 years old, you're immature, you know, even if you don't think you are, (laughs) because teenagers never think they're actually immature. But yeah, you had, you had something different about you, um, that, that I hadn't really ever experience before in a person so yeah i would think about you i remember when you came back we started hanging out pretty consistently and you fast became my best friend same here we were pretty inseparable yeah i would 
I would say that that's a great word for it, inseparable. And I think after hanging out for, what, two years, we got married. <laughs> like, there was no, like, true, uh, quote-unquote, dating time. We were best friends, and then... I said, I love you. And I said, I love you. And then I think it was like... A couple weeks Seven later. months. Huh? It was seven months later. No, about a bit. It had been like about six months later. About six months later, we were married. What? Yeah. You, you, you told, We man? confessed each other's love for each other. January, February, March, April, May, June, July. Six months later, we were married. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I just couldn't remember if it was January or December or what. It was cold, though. I remember that. When we got married, it totally shocked everyone because we didn't have an announcement. We didn't really tell people. We just got married in the courthouse. We didn't have a plan. Nothing. We didn't have money. Nothing. Nothing. We were impulsive. Very impulsive. We weren't ready to get married. No. We had a lot... So much growing up yet still to do. And we just were like, well, this is the decision we're going to make and we're going to do it. And no one, no one thought we should do it. No. I remember, I remember there was like a, we had to have been married. I think it was in the first couple of years of being married. My best friend's mom said that she didn't expect us to stay married. I don't think anybody did. Like, literally, I don't think anybody did. Because basically what happened was my dad walked in and I was having sex and then kicked me out of the house. So we got married. <laughs> so we got... That was our decision. To <laughs> we make. got married. That was our solution to the problem. We gathered up what little money we had and we got, like, a weird little apartment. You were fucking terrified. Oh, man. Yeah. I thought you were going to run. Yeah, the cold feet were real that day. Yeah. I wore a black dress. I wore a studded belt, which was my custom back in the day. It's funny that we're talking about this now because my mom sent me pictures from that day. That's awesome. So our first year of marriage was challenging. Yeah. We didn't make a lot of money. We didn't really have a whole lot of wisdom um, on how to even budget our money. We were both very impulsive and um, spent our money like where we shouldn't have. And so we racked up a lot of debt in that first year. I don't know about a lot of debt. Mm, it was probably like $1,500, but that was a lot for us. We didn't really know who we were individually. No. And a lot of our insecurities were projected. Yeah. We had numerous fights. Um, I like uh, I like to punch things, not people, but things, which was... You know, stupid, because it would have, like, hurt my hand. Yeah. <laughs> and I was a bass player, which, you know, whatever. Then about one month before our one-year anniversary, you joined the military. And then we spent the next four years, you were in and out of Iraq. We spent a year together in Germany. I moved back, and then you got out of the military and joined me. It's been 11 years now since we've been just you and I. Yep, which is crazy to think about. Like we, we kind of tend to skip the four years that I was in the, in the military because it like, it's, it's just whatever. I kind of talk about that period. I describe it in a way that probably makes you feel sad, but that was the period of time where we didn't like each other. Yeah. We were basically roommates. We were basically roommates. Yeah. 
I think a lot of people back home probably thought that, you know, these guys aren't going to make it through this. I don't think there was a lot of people who had capacity to even understand what it was that we were going through. No, the only people that could know are ones that were in the military themselves. Even like, you know, there's a big difference between like active duty and and the people that are in uh, National Guard or Reserves because like you get to stay home, you know, with active, you're gone all the time. It was pretty common in the military for spouses to have side pieces. Yeah, there was a lot of that, a lot of that. So that was some things that we had to unpack, which was difficult. And there wasn't a lot of help for us. Actually, there was none. No, like, well, we would, we would attempt to reach out to people and then like nothing would ever come of it. Right. Which is what I mean by, I don't think they had capacity. Right. Yeah, that's very true. For me, it was really difficult to allow you to love me in the way that I needed. Yeah. I remember in 2016, I hit a really, really, really low period of my life. I realized that I was depressed. Mm -hmm. A friend of mine started therapy because of things that were happening in her life. And when she would come to me and describe to me the season that she was in, it literally sounded like everyday life for me. I just remember thinking, well, yeah, isn't this normal? And she's just like, no, this is depression. And I was just like, well, I feel this every day. (laughs) So (laughs) this is normal for me. When have I not felt this? Yeah. And I realized I could not remember a time that I did not feel these things. Yeah. And I'm just like, man. I knew it. I knew there was something wrong with me. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that really started like a couple years of me going through and walking through um, that season of waking up to the fact that my mental health has was on the back burner and the fact that I I, I wasn't even aware of. um, I just remember like how much I admired you for just stepping up. Like you couldn't, you didn't have the words to comfort me. You didn't have the knowledge to be able to say like, and tell me the things that I needed to hear. No. What you could do was action. And so you cooked for me, you cleaned for me, you took care of everything for me. Yep. Even when I was planning how I was going to die, you were taking care of everything that I didn't have the capacity to take care of. Yeah. And you never once shamed me. No. I think an older version of me would have. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just a matter of I didn't understand per se what you were going through because I don't I've never really dealt with like a long-term depression. I've had like short-term depressing things happen. Um, but I've never dealt with long-term depression, but there was just, there was something inside me that knew that I needed to stick this out and not just call it quits, you know, of like, like, okay, like you can, you can just be depressed over there and I'll go over here and do something else or whatever. Like I just, I knew that that's not what I needed to do. I needed to be, I needed to be by your side and in whatever way that I could. And it was like interesting for me because 
I always remembered the day that my dad walked in on us having sex because of the conversation. Yeah. Like he was telling you that I was high maintenance, that I was going to drag you down with me. And so during that season, I'm just like, here I am. I'm dragging him down with me. My dad was right. I'm not worth this kind of love. Yeah. Because that's the message that I heard. And so I just was waiting for you to just quit and you never did. Nope. Like you showed up in a really real, powerful, authentic way. I didn't even realize until later. Yeah. And it wasn't really about like proving people wrong. Because I know that a lot of times we might, we as people might do that in a, in a, season of time of like well i'm just gonna do this thing because nobody said that i you know that i could do this thing or everybody said that we weren't gonna make it so i'm just gonna push through and stick it out for me it wasn't like that at all it was no i fucking love this woman and i'm gonna be with her through whatever i think you saw value in me even when i couldn't see it in myself even when everyone else around us was just like i don't understand what's your problem yeah. I remember having a conversation with someone in my family and I said, do you ever stop and wonder what if God isn't good? Because we always believed, we were taught that God was always good. We were taught that God is always good. We even, you know, they even did that in the church. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. So then what happens when you stop believing that it's true? Right. You know, thinking about that is like how many... How many people in the church at that time when they would do that, like, were actually going through some really hard shit and didn't actually believe what they were saying, you know? Like, God might be good right this minute, but how is it going to be after we leave this building? You know, is is life going to catch up to me, you know, once I step out these doors? Yeah. And then how do you even navigate those feelings of, like, for I know for me... You know, because I have an envy issue for sure, where I could just look around and see how everyone seems to have it figured out, and I don't. I yeah. was constantly questioning the narratives. I was constantly questioning the things that people said and that they said as if it was a fact. And I'm just like, I don't know if I believe this. I don't see it. I don't see how God is good in my life. I see that he takes care of me, but like his true, true goodness that people talk about where joy comes from that place. Right. I don't experience that because everywhere I look, I see pain. Yeah. Everywhere I look inside, I see pain. And so where is the goodness of God in that? Yeah. I saw the unfairness. I saw the injustice. I saw the double standards. I saw the hypocrisy all around me in my in my own heart in our marriage in our church in my family like everywhere i saw was hypocrisy and judgment and criticism and all these things and and i just i couldn't i couldn't figure out how to navigate that i couldn't figure out where i fit into all that and so that just really perpetuated that season that I was in of just questioning, what do you do when you stop believing that God is good? And I really believe that God put that question in my heart because I just spent so much time believing what everyone else was saying that I never stopped 
to question like how I felt and what I believed. So I think it was like a really good season. There was a lot that we learned, both of us, in that season. Yeah, I definitely think so, too, because, you know, you've you've kind of always been the one to push me to question things in general, and that was something that I'd never really thought about myself. Um, it was just, it was a good season of just bringing questions to our, you know, our own minds, you know, and we would challenge, like, our friends and stuff, too, of, like, what do you do? <laughs> when this happens so I think it was just it was a good season for sure last year when we were celebrating our anniversary we talked a lot individually with each other about how a year ago we had a conversation where I had said to you that if we can't get on the same page then I'm done I'm walking yep I remember that and I really thought that you were going to take that personally (laughs) you know because we've been like talking about divorce off and on throughout our marriage and this was like the final conversation that's almost you know that's kind of what sparked us to even move to austin was if something doesn't change here in mankato like we're just we're gonna be done yeah something something needs to change something needs to shift that was probably three years ago now right yeah and i just felt like you were just mirroring me but not in a healthy way I felt like you just followed my my footsteps everywhere I went, you went. And I really wanted you to step into your own voice, into your own essence of who you are instead of just being my shadow. But yeah. I thought I thought for sure you were going to be hurt. I thought for sure that you were going to just say, "Okay, let's be done then." You know? <laughs> yeah. Because I mean that because it's it's, you know, change is hard. In any season that you're in, change is hard. You know, the person you love comes to you and is like, look, we actually have a problem here. You know, it can tend to throw you for a loop. Me being blissfully ignorant in my life because I just don't, I don't pay attention to a whole lot sometimes. I tend to just see the good in everything and just like, well, this this is this is life. This is how we're, you know, how I'm doing it. And when you don't take the time to evaluate things in your life, you know, it can come to a point where you can't be blissfully ignorant anymore. And I think that's what, you know, that season really, that conversation propelled us into or propelled me into of like, okay, yeah, I need, you know, I can work and all this this stuff, but... Like, what is it, what good is, is working and making money going to do if I'm personally just going to stay the same, if I'm just not progressing as a person and things like that, you know, sure, I can make money, become, you know, relatively successful in the eyes of, of the financial world, you know, whatever, but it doesn't do any good if you don't have a heart change. And it wasn't fulfilling. No. You weren't being fulfilled. No. And I wasn't being fulfilled. Yeah. So it was it was good for good for both of us. Yeah. You know, um, to perpetuate change. Yeah. When we started digging into the Enneagram, there was a lot of an awareness. Yep. Big time. It was so much fun. Yeah. It was fun too because you know when we first did it, when we first took the Enneagram test a couple years ago, we typed 
differently than what we actually are. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, basically because we we didn't answer honestly and I think it just answered everything basically neutral and so I came out with a 9. <laughs> Because, like, it seemed like I was asleep, which is something that nines do. Do you remember my reaction to mine? You were mad. I remember reading the results and then, like, looking them up and, like, reading through just kind of, like, the overview of each one. And I was like, so I'm going to be alone for the rest of my life, is what you're saying. (laughs) Fuck this shit. And I, like, chucked my phone and you were in the way of my phone. (laughs) So I ended up throwing my phone at you. Yeah, it happens. (laughs) And I was told, I was told when I, when I took the test that this was going to be so helpful. This is going to be so good. And I was like, this is not helpful. This is not good. What are you like? Yeah, this is not, this is not what I wanted. And basically I typed as a four, a two and a one. Well, I think. The first one, the first time was a two. Yeah. For you. Was the dominant. Yeah. But the, I took that when I was in that season of depression. Right. Yeah. And I, <laughs> yeah, I took it and I was not myself, basically. Yeah. Um, either. So like, yeah, the Enneagram is one of those things where you really can't skimp on the answers. Like you have to actually answer correctly for yourself. You can't just make shit up. And be like, oh, now I'm a, you know, now I'm a six wing three. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> and and the tests, too, aren't everything. No, there are definitely better tests and some worse tests and, all, you know, all this kind of stuff. I was like, I need more. Where do I get more? Like, I need to find more answers to what was going on inside me. I wanted to better understand us. Go on Instagram Pinterest or whatever, and it just did not satiate. No, it did not that, even reach the depths of what I was looking for. Because all that stuff is basically fluff or stereotypes or whatever. Some of that stuff is good, sure, but it doesn't produce growth or really taking a look on the inside. It's just like stereotypes and things like that. The stereotype was always dramatic. Yeah. So once we actually got our our real types down, which didn't happen until, what was it, like the summer of 2020? It was um, beginning of May. Okay, so spring. Okay. We took tests again after, you know, kind of diving into things, and she typed as a four, and she was highly upset about that because she's like, I don't want to be just, like, typed, you know, whatever, as just being dramatic and creative. Like, that's bullshit. Like, there's got to be more to this than than just that stereotype and then for me being a seven sevens are supposed to be like super outgoing and bubbly life of the party life yeah life of the party and i'm a relatively reserved guy i'm an extrovert because i love being around people and i would say that i used to be kind of the life of the party i mean at the beginning we were talking about how i climbed up a wall and dropped from the ceiling Uh, there aren't too many other types that would do something like that. Um, but you know, I think just growing as a person, getting older, (laughs) I can't do that kind of stuff anymore. But like, so you just, you kind of calm down, you know? And I think that's what, that's what made us think 
that I was a nine for a while. I remember when we took the test again and it was determined that I was a seven. We were reading through things. What's it called? The child, the childhood wound or the... The wounding story. Yeah, the wounding, the wounding story of like, if you're this type, this is essentially like the childhood wound that you have. And I remember reading it and I'm like, well, that's definitely me. So then we were reading some more things and <laughs> I remember you were like, I knew you weren't dead. <laughs> I remember, man, I just remember placing my hands on your head and being like, you need to be stimulated. Yeah. And I had, at that time, I had no idea that you were actually a seven. You really did need stimulation. Yes. Big time. And that... You know, I would say moving to Austin, Texas is probably, from Minnesota, (laughs) is probably one of the most seven things you can possibly do without even, like, really realizing it at the time. Because I remember when you came back from visiting and we, you know, it was like the next day or whatever, we were just talking about your experience and, you know, how much fun it is here and, like, all the people you met and the sights and sounds and smells and, and you're just like... I think we need to move to Austin, Texas. Yeah. And I was like, okay, let, let's do it. You know, like who who just makes rash decisions like that? Oh, yes, the Schwimes. We do. <laughs> we do. We got married in a courthouse <laughs> with no money. We, we bought a house that we couldn't afford. It's kind of an ongoing thing of like, okay, we we got married in a courthouse with no money. Uh, when nobody was like supportive of it, we joined the military on a whim, essentially, because the sign on bonus was good for the job that I was offered. I would say pretty much any time that we actually like moved apartments or whatever, it was pretty much on a whim. We bought a house on a whim. Photography was basically a whim. Yeah. After finding out our our types, we really just kind of solidified in our minds and hearts that this right here this is gonna be the thing that's like gonna bring on change for our lives um for other people's lives so we you know we kind of hopped on the bandwagon of enneagram teachings books podcasts like any you know anything we can get our hands on and we still you know we still do that there's plenty of podcasts that we're subscribed to that we listen to all the time um, reading in books. So we were just starving for more, for knowledge, for... Because it was the first thing that we found that really explained what we were seeing and what we were experiencing around us. Yeah, because, like, Myers-Briggs didn't do anything like that. You know, the, the one way back when of, like, the sanguine... The temperaments. The temperaments, you know, that that's only, like, part of it. Like, they're all great tools, but nothing really got to the core of like who we felt we were and who we felt we could be. What we found with the Enneagram is that all of us are lost. We are all searching for what is missing and that's our true selves. And we all have our ways where we fixate on the image of who we think we should be or who we think we were that we end up feeling angry and frustrated and rejected. Yeah, totally. And then like ugliness in ourselves it would keep coming up and again and again and we would keep pushing it down and suppressing it and that feeling of disconnect exposes our deepest fears 
It exposes the cycle that keeps us stuck. Big time. And God presents us with an opportunity to... Grow and become essentially a different person from what we've always known. Yeah. And we need to learn how to love that, that version of ourselves that is right here and right now. Yeah. Instead of shaming it and rejecting it and suppressing that. And like one of the biggest things that really hit me really hard, this thing that I really feel like God revealed to me was that he went to the cross for who we are in this moment. That sacrifice that he made was so that we wouldn't have to live with the burden of being disconnected. Yeah. If Jesus loves us so beautifully, is it possible that we can love ourselves beautifully? God has been declaring truth over us and calling us up, but we keep rejecting it because we don't believe that we are worthy. Nope. That sacrifice that he made on the cross, he did it because we are worthy of that love. And we need to love ourselves and not run from who he created. Yeah, so good. We talked about like the stereotypes. You know, we would read through our typing and we're like, this is not who I am. Why not, isn't it describing who I am? Right, yeah, like not all of it. For and, sure. and most people use the Enneagram based on the stereotypes rather than the inner soul-based motivations. And the Enneagram and all the tools that we're going to like talk about, things that we've picked up along the way, they help us understand the God within us. And also helps us communicate with the people around us. You know, I think that's probably the biggest takeaway I've had so far with the Enneagram journey is realizing how much time I spend on looking ahead, thinking about the next thing. You know, they the sevens are like the planners or the schemers or whatever. I never felt like I really planned anything out. Yeah. But when you voice it in the language of you're always looking ahead to the next thing i'm like oh that makes sense so you're like you're essentially making plans for what's next in your life you know even if it's tomorrow you know like right now it's almost one o'clock in the afternoon am i thinking about what i'm gonna do tomorrow I mean, not currently, but normally I would. (laughs) You're definitely thinking about what you got left to do for the rest of the day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think like one of my favorite things that I learned about myself right there in the beginning was that there was another four that was talking and she was saying how people around us, and this is a stereotype, that we're just too much. That as four is that we're just too much for people around us. Our feelings are too strong. Our intensity pushes people away like all these things and that hurts you know to be considered too much right and we're so quick to label ourselves first of like oh no no no, i'm too much because we don't want to be rejected but the thing that i learned was it was phrased in such a way that just like i I wanted to stand in a chair and and yell (laughs) was that what if this is what started my what if journey what if i'm not too much what if they just don't have the capacity and they have to work on increasing that capacity. Yeah. I think that's why you and I actually work is because I am, I'm able to essentially increase my capacity for the different seasons that we've gone through to meet where you're at essentially. Like you, you're mostly the driving force behind what we do 
and things like that. But yeah, it's, so it's just like increasing my capacity to the think to the levels that you're trying to go, um, and I think that's what makes it work. But back to the biggest thing about like the the seven for me right now um, is just learning to sit in the moments. You know, um, I used to always be on my phone. Used to always need constant stimulation, which is you know, essentially true for a seven is you basically kind of always need to be stimulated. But once you've kind of realized that that's not everything, you begin to slow down. You begin to take in the world around you. You begin to take in the people around you. You begin to take in the conversation. You know, you are able to put your phone down and just sit and listen and engage in a conversation. And it feels good. It feels really good, you know, of like, I may not remember everything that was said (laughs) in a conversation, yeah, but I know that I'm present. When we realized that you were a seven and not nine, it clicked in my head. Oh my God, you don't actually need me. Yeah. I, yeah. I, how do I put that? I, I was in my two for a really long time. Yeah. I I was, like, constantly looking for ways that I could help you and push you. You would ask, you know, how can I help you? And I I literally, I don't need help, at least not with with menial things. Yeah, and I would take that so personally. Super personally. Oh, my God, you, you must not love me if you don't need me. Yeah. How can we be married if you don't need me? And I was confusing meeting your needs in a healthy way versus being a helicopter wife. Right. Because I was constantly being like, are you okay? Are you okay? Do you need something? Can I help you? We didn't know what it was back then. And so when I realized that you actually don't need me, I felt the burden lift off my shoulders. Well, at first, I think you're a little angry. No, I wasn't. No? No. I mean, I may have been like, wait, what? You don't actually need me? But my mind was spinning. Yeah. Like, I was connecting those pieces together in my head, and I was processing that out loud of like, wait, what? Like, you don't actually need me? What have I been doing this whole entire time? Because <laughs> I immediately I went through our entire history of our marriage. <laughs> of like 15 years in about a minute. <laughs> I have literally spent 15 years chasing you around being like, why don't you let me help you? And you didn't need my help. I wasn't mad, but I did feel the pain of that of like, it wasn't even really pain, pain, but I felt like the sting. Yeah. And then it dawned on me that I've been wasting my time. Sure. Chasing after something that you don't actually need. I was trying to fulfill something that you didn't need to fulfill. And it wasn't personal. Right. And once I realized that, I felt the burden lift off my shoulders. And I was like, oh my God, I don't actually want to help people like this. <laughs> this does not fulfill me. This does not feel like me. Yeah. It doesn't feel good. And so you can't possibly be a two if that's the case. Yeah. Because that's right. I found out I was a four after you were a seven. Because you FaceTimed me while I was at work and just bawling. I'm a four. Do you remember why I was upset? Mainly because of like the stereotype stuff of like being called dramatic and oh shit, my dad was right. I'm too much. Because he saw me, what we didn't know back then, that was lower development. Yep. That wasn't actually who I was. 
there was something else going on. That, that was immaturity. Lot... That was, yeah. you know, I mean, in the Enneagram language, we call it lower development. Um, but it's essentially immaturity. It's not taking that look at yourself on the inside. You become something that's not actually you. You're, it's like a, a shadow self, basically. So then we had the lovely, the loveliest of conversations where we went back to the very beginning where we asked the question, what the fuck happened? If we were a certain way before we got married, what happened to us? We asked the question of what happened to your joy? What happened to me? Why am I such a control freak? And that's where we're going to end it for today. Thank you so much for joining us on our first ever podcast. We can't wait for you to join us next week when we talk more about what happened. You are loved and you are seen. And we hope you have an amazing week. And we'll see you back here.